Hello and welcome to CIA Files, True Stories of U.S. Intelligence. I'm your host, Topher M. Ford. With me as always, Brandon Gibbons. Brandon, how are you? I am doing very well. Fantastic. Um, this week we've got the much anticipated, I'm assuming that you guys have been anticipating, uh, our episode on another member of the Cambridge Five spy ring, Guy Burgess, uh, a.k.a the hot mess of uh the cambridge five he's a he's an interesting character and i'm glad that we got to tell his story um what did you think brandon yeah. well cambridge five it sounds like a boy band <laughs> and um they those guys are usually involved in some wackiness and scandals and and Guy Burgess, he he lives up to that. So I think there might be an al alternate universe <laughs> where the Cambridge Five were like a, you know, the Beatles. Yeah, <laughs> there's the Beatles oh, Backstreet and the Kings. Boys. And, yeah. yeah, and then and then in that place, the Backstreet Boys were a group of spies that were involved in some shady dealings. Right. <laughs> so yeah, this one. And, this one I, I think I've got a book idea. Oh yeah, um, some uh, historical fan fiction. Um, yeah, I I want to say that I kind of so far of all the people I've we've covered, I probably identify with Guy Burgess the most just because he, I think he probably he may have had ADHD because he was like hyper, very energetic. He would get fixated on the ideas, but he could never focus. He could never like stay focused on something. Uh, he was also very prone to addictive and destructive behavior. Um, we've talked about the prevalence of alcohol with, you know, at these times. And I think um, from what I've read uh, among a group of legendary drinkers, guy was probably the king when it came to drinking <laughs> alcohol. He drank so much alcohol that the other oh, no, no, alcoholics no, no, no. at the time were like, what? Don't give away the show. Let them, have what, let them find well, out the show. Well, I'm just saying he he liked drinking <laughs> a lot. Um, anyway, here is uh, Guy Burgess. We are not professing to tell you the complete story of these activities. We are professing to tell you the complete story that we know. These records that we've uncovered... Yeah don't tell the story this is cia files they tell pieces of it true stories of u.s intelligence he had blue eyes and tight wavy hair was a good swimmer and looked menacingly healthy i've seen his looks described as boyish and he did convey a dash of pertness and sham innocence, as if he had just run away after ringing some important person's doorbell. One-time lover of Guy Burgess, Michael Byrne. In light of what was to come, my decision to follow in with Burgess's suggestion looks like a bad mistake. Kim Philby To meet Guy Burgess was to know Guy Burgess. Unkempt, opinionated, inebriated, Highly sexual and seemingly fearless, Guy engaged with anyone who happened across his path. He made strong impressions and quickly among those who met him. Some were immediately taken by his sharp wit and astute observations, while others were utterly put off by his obnoxious political preaching and shameless name dropping. Guy had countless lovers but few long-lasting romantic relationships. He had a habit of seducing someone one day, only to become close platonic friends with him the next. And while Guy was openly homosexual, a taboo, even illegal personality trait at the time, he wasn't opposed to sleeping with the occasional woman. He even contemplated marriage a few times throughout his life, although one can't imagine it would have been a monogamous affair. On April 16, 1911, Lieutenant Malcolm Burgess was aboard the HMS Isis near Devon Coast, England, 
Back on the mainland, at the family home near Plymouth, Guy Francis de Monsey Burgess was born into the world, greeted by his mother, his grandmother, and household staff. Continuing a long-standing family tradition, Malcolm Burgess served as an officer in the Royal Navy, though his career barely reached the status of mediocre. But he did reach the rank of commander before retiring. He was formally admonished twice during his tenure, once for allowing the ship's logbook to fall into the sea, and a second time for causing a collision of two ships. The family name, Burgess, came from the French word berger, which, quite fittingly, is the root word for bourgeoisie, a key concept within the ideology that Guy would later adopt, ultimately guiding his fate toward betraying his country and his friends. Guy's maternal grandmother, Maud Hooper, was from Montreal, born into a wealthy family of bankers. She married another wealthy banking heir, William Gilman, and the two moved to Portsmouth, where they became heavily invested in English banks and utilities, such as gas and water. Befitting the tradition of the British upper class, Guy was shipped off to preparatory school when he was nine. He attended Lockers Park School in Hertfordshire, where he did reasonably well, although, despite the school's strict rules on hygiene and tidiness, never developed the habit of personal cleanliness. Young Burgess was forced to endure the terrors of hazing at Lockers as well, from Guy Burgess, the spy who knew everyone. One Burgess contemporary who remembered him as, quote, the scruffiest and dimmest boy in the undistinguished group, also recalled the masters as a repellent lot, including one who was a downright sadist and delighted in reducing small boys to tears, making one cry with fear and impotent rage. Young Burgess also developed one of his great loves at this time, automobiles. He subscribed to car magazines and fawned over cars long before he was old enough to drive. His love of cars continued and flourished as he grew older. Just one year after retiring from the Royal Navy, Malcolm Burgess died of heart failure. The death of a father would surely affect any prepubescent child under any circumstances. But Guy's experience, according to him, was a bit more extraordinary and traumatizing. From The Spy Who Knew Everyone. Later in life, Guy Burgess recounted how he'd heard the cries of his mother and rushed to his parents' bedroom to find her pinned down by the body of his father, who had apparently died during the act of lovemaking. According to him, he'd had to drag the corpse of his father off his mother. Guy attended the prestigious school Eton for a short time before transferring to Dartmouth Naval College in order to follow the family tradition of becoming a naval officer. But he was discharged from Dartmouth before he could graduate. The official reason given was a defect in his eyesight. However, there is no other sign throughout his life that indicated he had any vision problems. Young Guy returned to Eton, where he found and enjoyed an English boarding school tradition rarely mentioned in polite company, despite its widespread popularity among young students. Sex among the all-male attendees Boys often found comfort and romantic fulfillment with each other while suffering under strict masters and abusive senior classmates. While most of these boys went on to lead what they'd call traditional lives afterward, marrying and fathering children, they'd often recall their childhood romances with nostalgia. One such man, James Lee Milne, wrote fondly of his young romance with a classmate named Tom Mitford. On Sunday eves, before chapel at five, when the toll of the bell betokened that all boys must be in their pews, he and I would, standing on the last landing of the entrance steps, out of the sight of the masters in the ante-chapel and all the boys inside, passionately embrace, lips to lips, body pressed to body, each feeling the opposite fiber of the other. There's been a fair amount of research on parental separation and bonding. Uh, for example, children that receive little to no touch as infants and toddlers often develop what's called reactive attachment disorder. Uh, 
They have trouble forming bonds, trusting people, and empathizing. Similar sorts of effects can be seen in children who feel emotionally abandoned by their parents. There's a body of research on how being raised in a boarding school influences personality development. Joy Skeverin coined the term boarding school syndrome. Now, much of this research focused on elite boarding schools and the culture associated with them. Now, first I'll describe the culture and then the personalities produced. The culture is very hierarchical. As a new student, you will be hazed and bullied. But in so doing, and keeping your hazing secret, you'll eventually be accepted and in the future be the one doing the hazing. Any accent or signal of class difference will be bullied out of you. Teachers and administrators are in the hierarchy too, and they may also engage in bullying and abuse. The abuse often includes sexual abuse. Authority figures, whether teachers or older students, commonly betrayed lesser powerful students. Like um, Richard Dawkins, the... um, the professor, um, he spent time in a boarding school and he spoke of being touched inappropriately by a teacher and was very dismissive of it. He had this whole attitude like, well, you know, it happened to me and I turned out all right. And it just seems to demonstrate how common such behavior was that the, you know, that the general attitude toward those in power was to abuse that power and People just kind of seemed to think it was normal. This this culture of secrecy and abuse, um, it helped facilitate homosexual relations. Now, I don't mean to say that homosexuals are by nature secretive or abusive. What I mean is that homosexuality was not socially acceptable, so being in a community that valued secrecy made it easier for homosexuals to connect and worry less about being outed. Out of this whole educational conditioning, you get a personality that values hierarchy, loyalty, secrecy, the sort of us against them and authoritarian thinking. A person raised this way learns that authority figures will likely betray them. Trust no one. You should hide your true selves and hide your emotions. Bullying is acceptable, and winning is perhaps the most important thing. So, as adults, they have trouble maintaining relationships. They're often workaholics with obsessive behavior and this need to be in control. As far as education, uh, they weren't necessarily great. Education wasn't necessarily great considering, like, if you consider science and math important. Uh, They did well with teaching the students about the classics, but outside of that, the students were more known for being good at public speaking and debate, as well as manipulating words and situations to their own favor, which are excellent political skills, to say the least. Uh, Boarding schools also worked as a system for networking, much like Harvard, Yale, you know, the Ivy Leagues today. I mean, education-wise, they they might not be any better than your higher-level public state universities, but the Ivy Leagues provide access to the 1%. So, yeah, you don't need the, the Bohemian Grove Secret Society to have a group of elites meeting to make decisions about the world's fate. It's just eating students and that bunch. And, I mean, these are the personalities that led Great Britain for generations and arguably are leading them now, leading Great Britain now. And, you know, viewing their decisions from that lens helps clarify some of the political decisions we've seen. All of this occurred under the shadow of a society where homosexuality was not only taboo, but outright illegal. The attitude was a bit all over the place at first. I mean, during World War II, um, homosexuality was often ignored by the authorities. I mean, there were bigger fish to fry, you know. 
There's also this theory that a significant number of people had a homosexual encounter during the war, which may have caused the population to be more tolerant than they had been before the war. In any event, after the war, the UK engaged in pretty much the same lavender scare as the US did. Anti-sodomy laws began to be enforced in earnest, Roughly a 1,000 people a year were prosecuted. A group of fairly well-known individuals, including a member of the nobility, Lord Montague, were prosecuted for homosexual relations. Alan Turing, the mathematical genius, codebreaker, and computer scientist, was found guilty of homosexuality. He ended up committing suicide. In 1957, three years after Turing's death, the Wolfenden Report was completed, and this report suggested the government decriminalize homosexuality. The government was very slow to act on these recommendations. Despite the conservative views toward homosexuality in the times before World War II, Burgess never worried about concealing his sexual orientation. The same was true of his political leanings. Robert Burley, a former master of Burgess at Eton, described seeing his flat during a visit to Cambridge. I noticed a number of Marxist tracts and textbooks, but that's not what really shocked and depressed me. I realized that something must have gone terribly wrong when I came across an extraordinary array of explicit and extremely unpleasant pornographic literature. After completing his primary education, Burgess enrolled at Cambridge University's Trinity College to study history. There, he became passionate about socialism. He joined the Cambridge University Socialist Society, where he met the four other men who would come to be known as the Cambridge Five, John Cairncross, Anthony Blunt, Donald McLean, and Harold Kim Philby. It was Burgess who brought Anthony Blunt into the group. The two men may have been lovers for a short period of time, but their relationship ultimately was not romantic. They did become incredibly close, however, and remained so from that point on. It was also during college that Burgess began developing what would become his vast network of personal connections, which would serve him well throughout his life, both in his career and in his work for the Soviet Union. Burgess was a brilliant student, but with a lack of the focus and work habits needed to succeed. He tended to ignore his studies until the last minute, often cramming the night before a test. This is exactly what he did at the end of his undergraduate term, which resulted in his falling ill and having a nervous breakdown. Many people suspect that his breakdown was due in large part to his use of amphetamines. Guy was awarded an agrotot, which was equivalent to a degree with an asterisk. It was generally given to students who were considered to deserve a degree, but were unable to complete their final exams due to illness. Guy's career prospects were often hampered by his constant drinking. He regularly went out on multi-day benders, sometimes disappearing before turning up again bedraggled and hungover. He developed a reputation for being dirty and unkempt. He typically survived on a pot of porridge he kept in his flat, filled with chunks of bacon, onion, garlic, and whatever else he could find. He also had the antisocial behavior of chewing on raw garlic. Despite these off-putting traits, Guy typically impressed people he met with his wit, his intellect, and his deep knowledge of just about any subject that came up. He was also an unabashed name-dropper, bragging all the time about the famous and important people he'd met and befriended. Burgess's friend, Kim Philby, had decided to work secretly for the Soviets after meeting Soviet agent Arnold Deutsch. When Deutsch asked Philby for other potential recruits, Philby mentioned his friend Guy. After meeting Guy, however, Deutsch worried that his lack of discipline and his ostentatious behavior made him unsuitable to work as a spy. 
But Guy could tell his college friends were up to something and bullied his way into their circle. He didn't buy Philby's sudden political shift to conservatism and rightly surmised that he and the others were working for the Soviets. In 1936, Burgess secured a job at the nascent BBC Talks Department, where he became their resident expert on Russia. This job would help Guy's compulsion to meet and fraternize with important and famous figures, and it would put him in a position to insert communist propaganda into news broadcasts. The BBC British Broadcasting Company started in 1922 with radio broadcasting. Radio broadcasting itself was quite new. There were no rules, guidelines. I mean, how do you do it? We don't know. Oh, we got a tower. We're going to just put some stuff out there. So uh, the first director was a guy named uh, John Reith, and it was wide open for him. As the 20s went on, there was a debate as to whether radio broadcasting should be a public good or privatized. Reith wanted it to be a protected public good. Wireless manufacturers, you know, like radio makers, they, they leaned the other way. And it just so happened that there was a general worker strike in England while that debate was raging in Parliament. Oh, the power of the media in a time of crisis. Now, some members of government, such as Winston Churchill, wanted to commandeer the radio the station as a way of controlling information and ending the strike. Reith wrote the Prime Minister, Stanley Baldwin, and asked him to trust the BBC. He advised them that, you know, it's like, hey, you know, you want to, when the dust is clear, you want to be able to say that you did not take over the airwaves. Stanley trusted Reith, who did a tightrope walk between reporting on the strikers and their demands and the government's position. The BBC pulled off the illusion of fairness masterfully. Now, it's true they interviewed many people and presented the views accurately, you know, the views of the government and the views of the strikers, but they also didn't broadcast Labour Party statements, and they delayed peace appeals from the Archbishop of Canterbury. In the end, though, much of the population was convinced that they were fair and balanced, uh, I think I'm supposed to say trademark, copyright, registered domain or something now. Anyway, detractors, um, they called the, the BBC the BFC, for British Falsehood Company. In the end, though, BBC impressed its audience and grew its listeners. The government decided to give the BBC a royal charter, thus they became the British Broadcasting Corporation in 1927. Their charter mentions their objective being a concern with policy. Reith was a bit of a traditional Presbyterian, and he wanted the radio and television to represent the best of moral society. So programming tended to be upscale. There was no advertising, as the BBC was paid for by tax on radios and televisions. So they didn't broadcast for mass appeal and to gain advertisers. Under Reith, with the guidance of the Crown, programming was stuff you could safely watch with Grandma. However, the quality was considered fairly high. Shows were well-written, music well-chosen, commentary, you know, their concern with policy, which was in their charter. Well, there they had a bit of trouble. See, they, they did not want to offend anyone's religious or political sensibilities, so much so to the point that political discussion shows were viewed as rather pointless. Throughout the 30s, um, not only were political speeches from fascist and communist censored, but from more moderate politicians as well, including but not limited to Winston Churchill. The Foreign Office was directly behind censoring the fascist and communist, and they wanted their interference to remain secret. Anyway, they progressed along, expanding and innovating. Starting the BBC television service in 1936, but television was stopped during World War II, 
and radio gained renewed central importance. BBC Radio had this ability to broadcast pretty much worldwide due to shortwave radio, but they censored broadcasts based on location. Like, broadcasts for Poland didn't include anything negative about the actions of the Soviets. Great Britain was very careful not to offend the Soviet Union. An MI5 officer set up shop at the BBC and vetted programming, a situation that continued after the war. Over time, programming evolved, TV resumed, and eventually the government allows for private competition on television and then radio. Soon after joining the BBC, Burgess went to work for MI6. He was assigned to Section D. Section D was a small, underfunded group with a vague mission. Kim Philby described the group in My Silent War. The section of SIS in which I found myself was known as Section D for destruction. I never saw its charter, if it had one. From talks with my colleagues, I gathered that the object of the section was to help defeat the enemy by stirring up active resistance to domination and destroying, by non-military means, the sources of his power. Burgess seemed in his element here. He was in an environment that allowed him to fixate on ideas until they outgrew his infatuation before moving on to the next idea that his brain churned out. In My Silent War, Philby describes Guy as a source of chaotic energy within their offices. Guy, following his own predilections, had turned DU into a sort of ideas factory. He regarded himself as a wheel, throwing off ideas like sparks as it revolved. Where the sparks fell, he did not seem to care. During this time, Guy and his fellow undercover communists didn't need to worry so much about their secret being discovered. While Stalin was fixated on British intentions to undermine the Soviet Union, the British establishment was preoccupied with their Nazi problem. In theory, Great Britain's foreign policy goal was to contain tyranny on the European continent. So, Great Britain definitely didn't trust the Soviets, but in their calculus, Hitler was a greater threat than Stalin. They also viewed a true alliance between the Soviet Union and Germany as an impossible scenario. A more likely scenario was that Stalin would make a separate peace with Hitler. So they rather bent over backwards to play nice with the Russians to the point of throwing Poland under the bus. Remember, Poland was invaded by both Germany and Russia. Germany did invade first, but the Soviet Union invaded nonetheless. Great Britain encouraged Poland to not declare war on the Soviet Union, and Poland accepted that advice. So once the Soviets were allies, they were, quote-unquote, liberating Poland. The British government certainly didn't trust the Soviets, but they thought they were less of a threat and more easily managed. More and more Soviet spy rings were discovered after the war, and the Soviets became the enemies they were seen as before Hitler gave them something more to worry about. When Guy Burgess and his Trinity College cohort decided to throw in with Stalin, they did so not only because of their faith in communism, but largely because they believed that Stalin was the best hope that existed to push back the rise of fascism. But when Stalin signed a pact with Hitler, they were forced to reconcile their anti-fascist motivations with their belief in communism. Hitler wanted to avoid a two-front war, and he needed a supply of oil. A non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union could accomplish that. Just as Great Britain was more concerned about Hitler than Stalin, Hitler seemed to be more concerned about the English and French than Stalin. Stalin, for his part, didn't want Germany interfering with his expansion plans into Finland or well, anywhere else he might like to go. He also didn't want the Germans to interfere specifically in Moldova, which was a Romanian area. So Molotov and Ribbentrop got out the map, and they made a deal. They split Poland up, and they set up different spheres of influence. At his heart, Stalin never trusted the politicians of London and their banker and shopkeeping backers. For Stalin, 
fascist, banker, what's the difference? Burgess ultimately decided to believe that this was just one part of Stalin's long-term plan to defeat the Nazis and win the war. The point became moot when Hitler broke the pact and launched an attack on the Soviet Union, saving Burgess from having to justify his alliance. During his short-lived career within British intelligence, Burgess's most important accomplishment was likely his help in getting his friend Kim Philby hired. Burgess arranged for Philby to meet with Section D's Marjorie Maxey, who passed his name up the chain, leading to his enlistment in MI6. In 1940, Section D was absorbed into a new group called the Special Operations Executive, and due to a recent drunk driving charge, Burgess wound up unemployed. He returned to the BBC for a short period, where he was constantly at odds with management due to his lack of reliability and his constant complaints over pay and expenses. However, when he was offered a new job in the British Foreign Office, his employers were reluctant to lose him. While unreliable and argumentative, Burgess's associations with celebrities and important political figures, including Winston Churchill, proved invaluable to the corporation. Burgess began working in the news department of the Foreign Office. The department's job was to serve as public relations for the Foreign Office. He was tasked with talking with journalists and anticipating what stories might end up in the newspapers, then developing and communicating the government's official responses and positions. While there, Burgess had access to classified information about Great Britain's foreign policy, which he passed along to his Soviet handlers. He was enthusiastic in this task, often passing along so many documents that the Russians had trouble processing them all, with much of them being of little or no value. Some of them, however, were very useful, such as documents on Britain's intentions in the upcoming Yalta Conference, wherein the leaders of the United States, France, Great Britain, and the Soviet Union would meet to discuss the future of Germany and European peace after the war. The Ribbentrop Pact was signed on the 23rd of August, 1939. It was an agreement between Germany and the Soviet Union. They split up Eastern Europe and the Baltics between themselves. Germany and the Soviet Union both hated capitalism, Germany didn't want to fight a two-front war, and the Soviets were still recovering from their civil war. So, seemed like a good fit. Seemed like a good idea at the time for both of them, I guess. Japan, for its part, was put out by the Ribbentrop Pact. And they had signed up with Nazi Germany because of their mutual hatred of communism. Uh, now here was Nazi Germany buddying up with Stalin. Eventually they do come to accept it and sign their own peace treaty, which we'll mention again in a, in a minute. Um, but just as Japan felt a bit betrayed, a lot of the communists in the West who were working with Stalin and the Soviets, they also felt betrayed. They're like, how could, you know, how could our communist leaders sign this peace treaty with these you know, fascists? But I'm sure they rationalized it or, or found a way not to think about it. And the easiest way to rationalize it would just say, oh, well, right now, capitalism is a greater threat than Hitler. So we'll just, you know, one war at a time. Well, the totalitarian romance between Stalin and Hitler continued, and they signed a commerce agreement in 1940. So the the Nazis gave like 200 million Reichmarks to the Soviet Union, which they used to buy German heavy industrial equipment, agricultural equipment, you know, what they needed to build their economy up. And in exchange, the Soviets paid for it with raw materials, you know, rubber, iron, um, I would imagine cotton, um, oil, so this was a win-win situation. Um, German industrial know-how and raw materials which are necessary for war for the Germans. 
the Soviets fulfilled their obligations to the letter. There was even talk of the Soviet Union joining the Axis, and talks were held in like November of 1940. Uh, it didn't happen, uh, but still Stalin felt comfortable uh, with his negotiations with the Germans, and he signed a peace treaty with Japan and or non-aggression pact right, with Japan in 1941 to kind of appease and make the Germans more comfortable with him. But this was all for naught. The Germans had already made up their mind in like the 1940 that they were going to invade. It was just a matter of when. So did Stalin really trust Hitler? Was he playing some sort of long game? Well, for Stalin, it was at least realpolitik. He'd put out the feelers to ally with England and France and confront Hitler, but the West didn't trust him. Um, Hitler and Stalin supposedly hit it off on a personal level. They had a win-win situation with each other. The Soviet Union was a seemingly infinite source of war material. Germany lost World War I in large part due to it fighting a, a two-front war. Stalin was convinced Hitler wouldn't make the same mistake. Even, with, even when his own spies warned him, he didn't believe it. He believed there were you know, some German military circles that wanted to invade, but the relationship was just too mutually beneficial. So was Stalin planning to eventually invade Germany? Well, uh, let's see, June 1942, Hitler and Finnish General Mannerheim, uh, they met, spoke, and the meeting was uh, recorded secretly. And in, the, in this meeting, Hitler, you know, he's being kind of candid, talking to this fellow, and, and he seems to express, like, shock at how quickly Stalin was industrializing and how quickly he was building tanks and building up his army. So, in Hitler's mind, it was his justification for invading, as he thought Stalin was planning it. Or at least that's what he told Mannerheim. That's a pretty normal thing for a large nation to do, especially one that is newly industrialized, is to build up an army with the industrial equipment you recently bought or had constructed. Um, but outside of that, there's no direct evidence that I've found that Stalin was going to attack the Nazis as long as they're trade relations were mutually beneficial. All right, so like, what of this Yalta conference? All right, so it occurs like toward the end of the war, 1945. It's, it's known at this point that Germany will lose. Um, it's very close to, to being over in that sense. Japan might take a little longer, um, but, you know, it's definitely swinging that direction. So Stalin... Roosevelt and Churchill, they meet in Yalta, Crimea, to discuss the future of Europe. And we have some things that occurred, some agreements that occurred from that. So the Soviet Union joins the United Nations, and they're going to be on the Security Council, and they get veto power. So this is something that's still around today, where like one nation can pretty much just veto anything if they're on the Security Council. And Roosevelt wanted Russia to declare war on Japan, which they said we will do in exchange. We want uh, all the other allies to recognize Mongolia as independent of China. And they also wanted um, connections to, the, to Port Arthur in China as well, the Manchurian rail line, pretty much some of their, their old colonial Manchurian ambitions are like, hey, we want access to that infrastructure. And the Chinese were not consulted and the allies were like, okay, okay, that, that sounds fine. And they also wanted, the, the Russians wanted Sakhalin Island back. Well, the southern part 
had been taken by Japan in a previous war, and they wanted that back. And so they said, okay, we'll get it. And Germany was to be split up with future, you know, future status dealt with later. Now, here's a sticking point, though, you know, saving for last. Uh, the, the Poland's communist government, which the, the Soviets had put in place, they were to be recognized as legitimate as opposed to the government in exile. I think the government in exile was in London. But free elections were to occur for establishing a new regime. So, and Russia would keep Eastern Poland, much of which is what is today Belarus and Ukraine. And in exchange, Poland would receive land from Germany. So it was like the whole country was scooched over to the left. Well, Churchill said, <laughs> kind of about Stalin in this meeting, well, poor Neville Chamberlain believed he could trust Hitler. He was wrong. But I don't think I'm wrong about Stalin. Well, he was wrong. Almost as soon as the ink was dry, the Soviets were going back on their Poland promises. Uh, the Soviets, they went about setting up communist regimes and arresting opposition leaders all, all throughout uh, their occupation zones in Eastern Europe. Roosevelt and Churchill were concerned. Um, Churchill commissioned a study into the possibility of attacking the Soviet Union in order to enforce the conference's agreements, namely with regard to Poland. The report, Operation Unthinkable, was completed in like May 1945, and it was not optimistic about victory. Now, having said that, they, they were worried that uh, in the event of the, uh, the war, uh, Iran and Iraq could separate from the empire or become independent or join the Soviets, you know, so that, that was kind of a wild card. And at that point, the war with Japan was still going on, and the Soviets had not yet declared war on Japan. So they thought, well, if we attack the Soviets, they will just make an alliance with the Japanese, and that's going to drag this war out even longer. Well, July to August 1945, the Allies meet again for the Potsdam Conference to try to, to work out these issues. And the Truman's there because Roosevelt died. Uh, Winston Churchill lost um, the election, so they've got another fellow, Clement, uh, Clement Attlee, um, represented the British. And, you know, the Soviets make new promises. Yeah, yeah, we totally promise we're going to respect um, democratic choices in Poland and all that. And like, okay, all right, fine. We'll, we'll go ahead and take your word for it for another minute here. We're new guys in the room. And so, like, August 2nd, 1945, the conference ended. A few days later, uh, the atomic bombs were dropped on Japan. Um, about two or three days after that, Soviets, uh, I think it was on the 9th of August, the Soviets declared war on Japan. And like the 14th or 15th or something, Japan surrendered. Like, I mean, the official papers weren't signed until September. So all within this two weeks, you got this conference where they're like, okay, yeah, the Soviets, we promise we're going to be, we're going to be nice and respect democratic rights in, in Poland. And, Hey, yeah, the war's over now. The world just like, oh, okay, finally, you know, the, the war is over. And so starting another one, they're like, oh, oh guys, it's, now it's time to go attack the Soviet Union. Uh, I, it just it was not in the cards, it seems. And that is perhaps unfortunate for Poland because they were you know, essentially stabbed in the back. All right. So, I mean, for this reason, it, it's... Or you could say that like, Western Europe joined World War II. Like that war was to protect Poland specifically and Europe in general from tyranny and authoritarianism. And it did not accomplish that. I mean, it failed in that regard. Um, you know, like the Iron Curtain covered Eastern Europe for quite some time. 
so they they didn't win World War II. Stalin did. Uh, so Stalin, uh, maybe he was bamboozled by Hitler, but he still came out on top. While working in the foreign office, Burgess had a habit of getting drunk and talking openly about working as a Russian spy, validating Arnold Deutsch's initial fears. However, it seemed that no one believed Burgess, given his general outrageous behavior. His claims of working for the Russians were typically taken as another of Burgess's many eccentricities. In 1948, Burgess was transferred to the Far East Department, where he became involved with Great Britain's relationship with China during the Chinese Civil War. While the United States took a hardline stance against the soon-to-be-victorious communist faction, Burgess pressed the British government to recognize the communists as the new official government of China. Stalin initially dismissed Mao, treating him as an inferior. Uh, Stalin wanted to get access to the warm water ports next to the Korean Peninsula and access to the Manchurian Railroad. Mao was not pleased. Um, and in the end, um, after Stalin's death, those, you know, the, the Chinese got control of those areas. But during the Korean War, the, the Russians and Chinese began to cooperate more. The Soviets sent engineers who helped with their industrialization. And well, the British were mostly interested in protecting their financial interests in, in Hong Kong. They agreed not to interfere in the Chinese Civil War, and um, within their own reports, they concluded that most British-owned property was going to be nationalized by the communists, but they would make more money by having friendly relations with them. And they ended up recognizing the People's Republic in 1950. The Americans held on to recognizing the Republic of China and Taiwan as the one China. It took about 29 more years before the U.S. moved diplomatic recognition to Beijing. In 1949, while out drinking with friends, Burgess fell down a flight of stairs, which resulted in a severe head injury. His recovery was slow, dampened by his constant drinking. The event also introduced a new element to his overindulgences, opiates. Burgess was prescribed strong pain medication that he quickly began to abuse. His friends and associates stated that he was never quite the same after this. Where his mind had been quick and his wit sharp, he had become slow and somewhat dull. In 1950, Burgess was transferred to the United States at a post in England's Washington branch of the Foreign Office. His good friend and fellow Russian spy, Kim Philby, was already there, working as the liaison between MI6 and the CIA. In keeping with his trademark lack of tact and diplomacy, Burgess showed open contempt for the prevalence of racism in America toward African Americans as well as toward the United States' foreign policy toward the new communist government. With regard to communism, U.S. foreign policy was dominated by the domino theory. It was this idea that if one nation fell to communism, then the neighboring nations would likely do so as well. With that in mind, the spread of communist regimes, even if democratically elected, were seen as against the U.S.'s interests. Their fears were based on the Soviets setting up puppet states in Eastern Europe, communist insurgencies in Greece and throughout Asia and Latin America. And, you know, at the very end of World War II, the Chinese nationalists were winning uh, the Civil War there. But by 49, the communists had won. In 1950, North Korea invaded South Korea. This is also a period in which the Soviets are leading the space race. They've, they've detonated um, an atomic weapon. And you have these like charismatic rebels in Latin America drawing attention to the cause. So the U.S. saw the threat of the world turning communist one nation at a time is, is very real. So to counter communism, the U.S. set up the Marshall Plan to help rebuild Europe. 
U.S. helped rebuild Europe not so much out of kindness as to stop the spread of communism. Uh, the U.S. supported um, pretty much any regime fighting communists, such as um, Greece and South Korea. Uh, that support, you know, it could come at a cost like trade concessions or access to military bases. Uh, the Soviets and the Chinese Communist Party did pretty much the same. Uh, they helped supply communist guerrilla organizations like the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, they also propped up and provided economic support to communist or communist sympathetic regimes such as Benin, Somalia, Angolia, and Ethiopia. And yeah, I mean, Afghanistan too. That was a um, communist sympathetic regime. If not, yeah, you could probably call it communist uh, that they were trying to prop up. Uh, additionally, if a communist hard left-leaning government or communist sympathetic regime were elected, the U.S. intervened by either propping up an authoritarian regime like it did in Vietnam or assisting in the installation of an authoritarian regime like it did in Guatemala and Chile or funding a counterinsurgency like it did in Nicaragua. Burgess's posting within the Far East Department of the Foreign Office gave him access to British and U.S. attitudes toward the situation developing in Korea, which he also shared with Moscow. After World War II, you know, similar to Germany, Korea was split in two. The Soviets set up a communist regime in the north, and elections in the south set up the Republic of Korea. Pretty much from the get-go, there was a communist insurgency in the South supported by North Korea. South Korea, with the help of the U.S., eventually suppressed it. The suppression was pretty brutal. Over 14,000 civilians were killed and a similar number of soldiers. Both sides engaged in massacres. Like Kim Il-sung, the South Korean president, Rhee, was not above political murder. Well, Kim Il-sung did not accept that his insurgency had really failed, so he sought support from Stalin for an invasion. Stalin gave it, but insisted the Soviets would only provide assistance with like training and arms. Kim believed that if the North invaded, that the South would rise up in support and Korea would be unified. Also, the South's military wasn't as large and as well-equipped as that of North Korea, and the South Korean president was more or less a tyrant lacking any unified political ideology. So Kim Il-sung expected a quick invasion and victory, you know, even if, if there were no insurgency to help him. So Kim Il-sung's 1950 invasion was quite successful at first. The UN, they voted to intervene, and so a coalition of Brits, Americans, and I think about 16 other nations, uh, they were going to be on the way. Uh, the South Korean army was almost destroyed, but they held out at Busan and were reinforced by the Americans, the British, and these, this other coalition of United Nations troops, who eventually pushed the North Koreans to the Chinese border. After arriving in Washington, Burgess asked Philby if he could stay at Philby's home. Despite the overstressed condition of his marriage, Philby agreed, and the two quickly proved to bring out the worst in each other. They spent much of their time drunk, with Philby hosting endless parties at his house, attended by key figures in U.S. intelligence. At one such party, Burgess drew the attention of one of these key figures, William Harvey. Harvey had worked in counterintelligence for the FBI before moving on to the CIA. Harvey was probably the last person a Soviet spy would want to insult. But Guy, being no ordinary Soviet spy, did just that. One of Guy's many talents was drawing caricatures. During a Thanksgiving gathering at Philby's home, Burgess arrived, aggressively drunk, and began drawing caricatures of some of the guests. One of his subjects was William Harvey's wife, who was delighted by the thought and insisted on seeing the drawing. Burgess had accentuated her slight underbite and her ample bosom. She and her husband left angrily, and Philby became inconsolably upset. 
Burgess was eventually fired from his posting with the Foreign Office. His work had been considered unsatisfactory, which by itself might not have been enough to cost him his job, but a formal complaint lodged with his superiors from the governor of Virginia proved to be the final straw. Burgess had a habit of accumulating speeding tickets and parking citations with his reckless driving, which he always had overturned, citing his diplomatic immunity. While traveling through Virginia on official business, Burgess had been stopped while in the company of a young gay black hitchhiker named James Turk, whom he'd met and picked up at the beginning of his trip. Burgess had insisted that Turk drive and told him not to mind the speed limits. The two were arrested, and Burgess made a scene by threatening the officers with creating an international incident. They released him, but kept Turk, who recounted all of the sordid details of their trip. The timing of Burgess's job loss was somewhat convenient, as it so happened that he would have to return to England to protect a member of his Soviet cohort. One of his fellow spies, Don McLean, had been discovered by the FBI via Project Verona. Brandon explained Project Verona in our last episode on Kim Philby. Project Verona was an American cryptography mission to decode messages to and from Soviet spies in the U.S. In the 40s, a team of male and female cryptographers made major breakthroughs in cracking the code. Up to half the codes were deciphered in 1944. Then Bill Wiseman, a Soviet agent working in the Army Sig U.S. Army Signal Corps, informed Soviet intelligence of the project's existence. The Soviets stepped up their game, and the codes were again harder to break. Nonetheless, a lot of traffic was uncovered, revealing that the Soviets were spying on the Manhattan Project and that Soviet spies were working in the U.S. Treasury, the State Department, and OSS. Numerous spies and informants were in identified, including an aide to President Roosevelt, um, Alger Hiss, and the Rosenbergs. Philby tasked Burgess with returning to England to warn McLean so he could escape capture and flee to Russia. But Philby stressed to Burgess how important it was that Burgess not join McLean no matter what. However, Burgess's Russian handler, Yuri Modin, decided against Philby's order. He claimed that Burgess was burnt out and on the edge of a total mental breakdown and that he would eventually be arrested by the British and interrogated. So Burgess and McLean boarded a holiday ship bound for France, which would be the first leg of their escape to Russia. The disappearance of Burgess and McLean became international news, and it brought down a mountain of suspicion on Kim Philby, just as he'd known it would. Burgess and McLean's whereabouts remained a mystery to the British government until 1954, when a Russian officer named Vladimir Petrov defected to Australia. He informed the government there about the Cambridge Five spy ring and told them that Burgess and McLean were living in the Soviet Union. Guy spent the rest of his life in Russia, living mostly in Moscow. The Soviets were largely intolerant of his homosexuality, but he managed to keep a lover named Tolya Chisekov. He held a part-time job in Moscow, working on Russian translations of British literature. In 1956, Burgess and McLean were allowed to speak briefly with Western journalists, finally confirming to England that they were indeed living in Russia. They held a short press conference in a hotel room where they each gave brief statements before leaving without answering any questions. They insisted that they had never been Russian spies and that they had gone to Moscow, quote, to achieve better understanding between the Soviet Union and the West. While in Russia, Guy's health declined sharply due to his drinking and poor eating habits. He suffered from ulcers and arteriosclerosis, and on August 30th, 1963, he died of liver failure. He was 52. 
All right. Well, that's uh, the story of Guy DeMont- Guy Francis DeMontsey Burgess. And, um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. He died pretty young, uh, drank himself to death. And lived hard. Yeah. I don't think his corpse was that good looking. He lived hard, died young. I don't know that his corpse was fairly bloated by the end there. Um, we're going to be back. Uh, we're coming back home to the States. Uh, with our next episode where we dive into uh, the back half of James Jesus Angleton's career and uh, all of the shenanigans that he got into and the impact that he made on the CIA. Um, It's not good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thanks for listening. You know, of course, as I always uh, like to say, hit us on them socials. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, at CIA Files Podcast, uh, Facebook.com slash CIA Files. We have the website, which I will be updating very soon. Maybe it'll be updated by the time this comes out, but the uh, website is CIAfiles.net. Anyway, until next time, um, take it easy. Take it easy.